Peter writes to those in 1 Peter, in 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. If you're a Christian tonight, you've received a faith that is as precious as Peter's, as those who are with Peter's. It's so, so precious. And yet, do not go through life troughs and peaks, highs, lows. And in those moments of low, don't you think, how do I know it's true? How can I be so sure? Well, sure, many times we've thought such things, correct? Yeah, I'm not on my own. I hope, is it all real? Why do I trust? Or perhaps it's been a question that a friend has thrown at you when you've been sharing your faith. How do you answer it? Well, maybe phrases like, well, uh, it's all true. I've just rung out. Now, I, I am a Star Wars fan, and I think um, Tommy's growing up knowing Star Wars. But there is a moment uh, in, in film seven, if you've watched Star Wars, The Force Awakens, where Han Solo is in the Millennium Falcon uh, and Ray, um, Poe, uh, they're, they're looking at him as he talks about the force. And Han Solo, there's just a moment, it's the best moment of the film, and he looks at them, and there's the music that plays in the background. And he nods his head slowly, and in true cinematic fashion, he just says, it's true. It's all true. And it's the best moment of the movie. And perhaps you've used that kind of phrase and it hasn't quite washed with your friends as they've questioned you about Christianity. It's true. Or my life has changed so much because of it. I'm closer to God. I feel, I feel it. And, and those things might be true, but it's quite subjective, isn't it? It is true because it's changed me, my friend might argue. Uh, okay, um, that works for you. And that's great, but, but it's not quite for me. Perhaps when we struggle with our own personal doubt, that that subjective truth, it, it can wax and it can wane on any given day with our fickle and flexible feelings and emotions. One moment I can be as high as a red kite that soars over Bista, confident on top of it all. And the next moment I get some news and it's a body blow. I'm scrambling around, clinging to any scraps and shreds of faith that I can find. See, if my faith is based on subjective truth, on truth that just matters to me, then I'll feel like a wave tossed around in the sea this way and that way. And listen, hear me right, feelings and emotions that come from faith are, are critical, they're essential. But if my faith is based on this subjective truth, then my emotions, they control my outlook, or they have the ability to. And in 2 Peter 1 verses 12 to 21, we see that Peter is reminding the Christians that faith is always based on objective truth. Of course, there's feeling, there's emotion, there's realness that come with that, of course. 
But Christian faith, the faith that we've received, is always based on objective truth. Objective truth, that is, it's outside of my being. It, it doesn't depend upon how I'm feeling, whether it's true or it's not. It doesn't depend on whether I believe on it. It's either true or it's not. It's authentic and true. Whether I believe in it or not, it's absolute truth. And look how he starts this section, which we'll call wholesome thinking around God's word. Verses 12 to 15. Let me read it again for us. Here's Peter. He says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Look, we said before, this is Peter's last letter. He knows that his days are numbered. You see that tent? He talks about this tent, his body, his earthly dwelling. He talks about the departure of it. And the word departure, it's linked to the word exodus. He sees that his death is, is just a moving on. It's moving on to a, another destination. Back in, in verse 11 of, of chapter 1, he's already mentioned that the welcome awaits him. But before he goes, even though the Christians that he writes to are firmly established in the truth, verse 12, they're firmly established. They're going good. They're red hot on gospel truth. Even though the Christians he writes to are firmly established in truth, he must. And he says, using some of the language that we looked at last week, he says he must make every effort. Verse 15. He must make every effort. What? To do what? Make every effort to do what? And there's three very similar phrases that he uses. Verse 12, always remind. As long as I am here in the tent, as long as I'm here in the body, it's my job to always remind you. It's my job, verse 13, to refresh your memory. So that in verse 15, you'll always be able to remember. Remind, refresh, remember. That's what Peter's all about. And he's going to make every effort, even though these Christians are established in the faith, he's making every effort to remind, refresh, so that they will always remember. Remind them of what? Refresh your memory about what? So that they will always be able to remember what? And he uses these two words, these things. And I'm like, come on, Peter, be more specific. I, I try and help my children when, when we use the word stuff or things. You know, when your parents perhaps did that to you. Stop using those words, stuff and things. Just be concrete. What is it that you're talking about? These things, says Peter, verse 12. I'll always remind you of these things. Verse 15, always remember these things. And you see, the first word of verse 12 is the clue. So, so, so. It's a linking word. So, because of what he's already written in the first 11 verses. Remember the way into salvation. 
Remember that we looked at that last week? Know the way on in salvation. Look forward to the end goal of salvation. So what he's doing, these things are all about salvation truth. The way in, the faith that you've been given, the effectual calling. Remember it. Understand what the way on is. That because we've got this election, go and live for it. Go and enjoy it. Go and exercise the faith that you've been given. And then look forward to the goal of salvation. Peter sees it as his job. He's going to make every effort. And next week, we'll see why. He's taken a long time introducing his letter in the first chapter. Next week, we see exactly why this is really crucial. Because Peter knows that without it, it could mean catastrophic results if these Christians stop trusting for salvation. Verse 10, we looked at that last week. They might stumble and fall. And therefore, for us, catastrophic results too. If we don't remember, if these words are not refreshed to us, if we're not reminded of such truth that we looked at last week. Catastrophic results. If we listen to others in this world who try and prize us away from the faith. Catastrophic results if our feet are not secure on a rock-solid base of objective truth. So many Christians, so many Christian authors make outstanding claims about the Bible. And this is what Peter is talking about. We're going to look at this now in depth of what the Bible is. Now, thanks, Joe Spencer, uh, for this rascal. It's a good book. I was walking with Joe and he said, I'm reading this at the moment. So, uh, I, I've got it and it's really helpful. A Christian guide to actually reading books. Now it's a book about reading books, which sounds a little bit odd, but it's good. It's top class. And here the author talks about how when I read the Bible and understand the Bible, I can read any piece of literature through the Bible's lens, through the Bible's worldview. And why is this so important? This is what Tony Reinke says. He says, the Bible. The Bible was written by God through human authors, but it is fully inspired in all its parts. It is the only book that is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and wholly consistent in its worldview. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant. It's all true. It's sufficient. It's everything we need for salvation and godly living. It's supreme above all all other sources and you see what peter is doing now he's he's pointing these christians to the rock solid word of god this is where we find objective truth as we have it today and here's two points we'll just pick out two things and it's separated nicely in the way that peter does it first of all we'll see god's word it's authentic eyewitnesses of jesus christ and God's word, it's reliable foretelling of Jesus Christ. Verses 16 to 18, God's word, authentic eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Let's just read this together uh, quickly. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. See what Peter is saying? Look, these are not cleverly devised stories. They're not it's not made up, it's not fantasy, it's not wishful thinking. I've got a friend who I'm regularly trying to speak to of Jesus, and he keeps saying to me, it's what you want to believe that makes you believe it. He uses that phrase. And I say, no, it's not. And Peter here is screaming and he's saying, no, no, no. Do you know what, Christians, friends that I'm writing to, friends that I desperately want to continue in faith I was there in fact he changes using the word I after verse 15 to 16 we and it's important because he's saying we were there it's not just me there were other eyewitnesses we saw it all we saw the wonder and the glory of the majesty of Jesus Christ it wasn't just me says Peter it was many of us, credible men. We had our lives turned upside down by what we saw and heard. And isn't it interesting that Peter here talks about the transfiguration? It's a time where Jesus, he was with the disciples uh, and, and he was transfigured. He was taken up into the sky for a moment. Look, Peter could have used any other story that that marked Jesus's identity, who he was and what really happened. Think about that. Think about the miracles that Peter saw. And yet he stuck with this one. Uh, here's what happened at the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, led him up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to him, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In brackets, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, Peter recalls when he was there. Look, the event happened. It was history. We were present. The fact that I made a pig's ear of it is beside the point, says Peter. He doesn't even mention that. Now, in the brackets, in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel, they say the same thing. Peter said something ridiculous. Let us put up three shelters for you, Moses and Elijah. He didn't know what to say. He was frightened writes the author, but Peter, he doesn't even regard that. I think I'd have, I'd have put in every other story about Jesus in the Gospels, but not one that made me look stupid. Not Peter. He doesn't care about him. He doesn't care about what that made him look like. He cares about the essence of what he saw. What did he say? Jesus taken to heaven and a voice a voice, the majestic glory of God. He heard the voice. This is my son whom I love. 
And these words were quoted in Psalm 2. So we've got Psalm 2. We've got the account within the Gospels that I've just read. And we've got 2 Peter who's reflecting on it. Psalm 2 verse 7 says this. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Peter's not recalling some random event of his time with Jesus. What's the problem that the Christians are facing here? We'll see it next week. The scorn of the idea that Jesus is the ruling king. Really? He can't be. The ridicule that Jesus is coming back, that he will return. The false teachers are teaching the opposite. Peter says, I was there. Don't listen to people who say who Jesus is or who he isn't. Jesus was just a good teacher, say some. A forgotten man of history, say others. A fraud, a liar. No, says Peter, I heard the booming voice of God. He's my son. He's the ruling king and he will return. And Peter says, I was there on the mountain when it happened, on the sacred mountain. An eyewitness, it counts. It really matters. It really matters, an eyewitness account. Oh, look, I remember many years ago now when I was uh, working away in the office in Bista. And there was a rumour that uh, a famous footballer was present uh, within Bista. He had been um, stopping at the Golf and Country Club and news had got out that this famous footballer was there. And uh, it was all hearsay. Up until the moment when a colleague came rushing into the office, doors banging straight into uh, the room that I was in. Blanks, you never guess who I've seen. Go on, who? Gaza. I've seen Paul Gascon. Now, here's Paul Gascon. For those of you, there might just be one or two that have never seen Paul Gascon. There he is, the greatest footballer that England have ever produced. Hero. Now, because a colleague came into the office at that moment and said, I have seen him with my own eyes. That was it. Where? He was in Bista Village. Took no time. The meeting ended that I was in. And off I went to Bista Village to try and see Paul Gascoigne. The eyewitness counts, the eyewitness account mattered. Hearsay, hearsay, is he there? There was a newspaper clipping that he'd been seen. But when someone I trusted had seen Paul Gascoigne, that was it. You know what Erasmus, the 16th century scholar reformer, says of the Bible? He says, the Bible will give Jesus Christ to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your eyes. Erasmus says, look, there's so much evidence, there's so, much, so many uh, historical evidences, eyewitness accounts of the Lord Jesus. There's more evidence with the Bible than if he stood before you with his own eyes. And historians using standard methods for checking out reliability of texts find that the gospel came out far more favorably from many other texts at that time. 
the numbers of the early copies so close to the original date at the time of writing mean that we have good reason for believing that the Gospels are indeed authentic. Authentic accounts of Jesus's life written by eyewitnesses. This is what an apologist, Michael Ott, says. He says the sheer quantity of manuscript evidence means that we can know that the Bible hasn't been changed by political powers in the fourth century or any subsequent point in history. The sheer quantity of evidence. Will you have confidence in God's word as written by authentic eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ? And for some of you, that will really help. I know that will help. Because you'll go, ah, ah, that's great to understand reliable sources, where they've come from, how it's authentic. And for others of you, you just go, yeah, okay, that's all right. What I really need to know is what's in it. And that's where Peter says, look, I'm with this account so that you can remember the things that I've said in verses 1 to 11. And so it's for both of us tonight. Those that really need to know how the Bible came about and how the eyewitnesses accounts can be credible. And those that just accept it and go, yeah, but tell me what's in it that's true. That's what really matters for my working out of faith. Let's go second. Look, God's word is reliable foretelling of Jesus Christ. I'll read those verses from 19 uh, and then we'll make some comments and wrap up. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we have God's word. Look, it's written by human eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. But, but Peter, he pulls it back and he says, yeah, but what about before? What about before Jesus? Here we have the Bible. Over 40 authors, three different languages, written over 1,500 years. Authors were young, were old, fishermen, soldiers, farmers, civil servants, kings. Different periods of history, different geographical locations to different groups of people. And yet it's not like a, a relay race where every author's handed the baton on to another to keep writing. Some of them wrote centuries apart, yet the cohesion, the one central theme and the focus on one man. It's quite incredible. Look what we have, says Peter. The words of the prophets, he says, are completely reliable. So pay attention to it. He says, pay attention to it. Don't be blasé. Don't be indifferent. This is a ridiculous ridiculously good book because it's God breathed and the way that it's woven together that we've got it now all in one book that's completely coherent he says is incredible do you know there are over 300 prophecies that point to Jesus's birth or life or death resurrection and kingly rule over 300 prophecies about the Lord Jesus 
Follow me with this, because I think it's really helpful. A guy called Peter Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College. He was passionate about biblical prophecies. And so with 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. And they came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled and then considered the likelihood of Jesus being the one who would fulfill all eight of the prophecies. And the conclusion of his research was staggering. So the prospect that anyone would satisfy those eight prophecies was just one in 10 to the power of 17. In science speaks, he described it like this. Let's try to visualize the chance. If you mark one of 10 tickets, place all of the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. That's fairly obvious. Suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Two feet deep, the whole of the state of Texas. Now, mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state of Texas. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say, this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? And here's, here's what Peter Stoner says. What chance? Here's the chance, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. And therefore, that's the point. If they wrote their own wisdom, that's just with eight prophecies. There are over 300 prophecies of the Lord Jesus. Of course, it's not human will, says Peter. It's not human ideas, not human hopes, but carried by the spirit, orchestrated by the spirit, the wind that blows behind it. And therefore, like a light shining in a dark place, as the spirit blows, morning star rising in your hearts. As I see the truth, as I understand and grapple with the truth as the spirit moves. So let's finish. What do we do with this book? Josh Horn dared me to do the actions from this morning and tonight. So therefore we'll do them. What do we do with this book? God's word is true. So remember it, right? God's word is true, so remember it. I can see Josh giving me the thumbs up. That's what we do with God's word. It's not different from children for us. It's exactly the same. Learn to love it. Learn to read it. Learn to study it. We would love to help you do that. Here's one book that's helped me enormously. Dig deeper. Give me a text. I'll get you one. 
we'll get you on. <laughs> More to the point. Gossip it to others in church. Let God's word dictate our conversation. Delight in it together. What do we do with God's word? Let it dictate our worldviews. If you're not sure about current issues, and there are so many changes, aren't there, on current issues, let God's word speak into them in justice. Go to the Sermon on the Mount and see what the Lord Jesus has to say. Women's rights. See how Jesus protects women and looks after them and loves them throughout the Gospels. Sexuality. Go to Genesis 1. See God's perspective. Racism. Go to the book of Acts. Watch the early church deal with aspects of, of different cultures and contexts and ethnicities. Hold it out to others. In your conversations, in your apologetics, let it be your authority. May it always point you to Jesus. And that's the point, see. Peter's saying it's not just a book. It's not just a book about God. It's a book that helps us see who Jesus is. And through that, we understand the way in to salvation, the, one, the way on in salvation and the aim of salvation. And get ready for the onslaught of the false teachers in chapter two, because this book prepares us for everything and anything that others in the world has to say about Jesus.